Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio, brought to you by Hyperbaric Physicians of Georgia, a comprehensive wound resolution and UHMS-accredited hyperbaric medicine practice with four offices to serve you. Find us on the web at www.hbomdga.com. Facebook and Twitter at HBOMDGA. Good afternoon, everyone. This is C.W. Hall, your host here on Top Docs Radio. Thank you very much for making us a part of your afternoon. Uh, today's topic is one that uh, I'm very pleased to be bringing to the community. We're joined by a couple of uh, medical experts here from the Atlanta area. Uh, their focus, um, or at least part of their clinical focus, is dealing with a group of, of ladies that are dealing with a problem that uh, a lot of them are, are, are faced with in the community. I was really kind of surprised as I got into uh, looking into our topic a little bit before the show just how many ladies are dealing with uterine fibroids. Some of them know, but some, some of them don't know that they have uh, this kind of issue going on until they find it on an exam at some other time. But uh, first, I'll just say a quick hello and get our guests introduced. I've got uh, Dr. Carlos Alarcon of uh, Marietta OBGYN joining us today, an OBGYN specialist. Good morning. Uh, good afternoon. Thanks thank, for having us. CW. Thank you very much for being here. And of course, uh, Dr. Lippman, I had the the good fortune now uh, of meeting you several years ago, and here we are today. Uh, you're with the Atlanta Interventional Institute, Interventional Radiology. Thanks. Yeah, appreciate uh, seeing you again. It's just fun. Well, so our topic, as we said, was uh, uterine fibroids, and and just before we went on the air, I was commenting on how surprised I was by the number of ladies in the community who are dealing with it. The the statistics that uh, kind of leapt out at me was uh, among women, by the time they're 30, roughly a third of them are dealing with some sort of measure of fibroids uh, in the uterus. Uh, and of that group, roughly a third of them will be having problems like very heavily heavily bleeding during menstruation, uh, a lot of discomfort with cramping, and uh, a variety of complaints that uh, really interrupt their quality of life. And then by the time they're 50... As many as 80 or 90 percent of the ladies will have some measure of uterine fibroids in place that, uh, again, obviously a, a significant portion of that group will be having some problems. So kind of I'll start with you, Dr. Alarcon. Um, you know, if if I come to you, I mean, typically, how is it found? Is it is it more often I would presume the lady who is having these issues? I, I'm, my periods are, are really driving me crazy. Uh, is that typically how it, how it comes into being in terms of them knowing that they have this issue going on? Uh, yeah, CW. So a lot of women do present with complaints that are consistent with, with fibroids. They come in, they're having these horrible periods or having accidental bleeding where they're bleeding through to their clothes or, you know, waking up in the middle of the night and their bed's soaked. I can only really imagine horrible. how disruptive yeah, that is. Yeah, I mean, is. you could just imagine how that would affect your quality of life. So, I mean, you do have some women who present um, with those uh, sorts of complaints. But surprisingly, a lot of women just live with it, and they don't even really bring it up unless you directly ask them. So I can't tell you how many just in uh, during a routine annual will come in and we'll be discussing, and I'll just mention something about, oh, you know, are your periods bad? And we start talking, and I'm just overwhelmed by what they're dealing with at home, and they're seemingly – you know, just feel like, oh, well, I don't want a hysterectomy, so I'm just going to live with it <laughs> right. sort of thing. I, and and so that's why I think this is such an exciting topic that we're talking about today, because there are so many more opportunities now available. You know, what used to equal a hysterectomy for everyone really can be managed in, in so many different ways now. It's, it's really um, a, an exciting uh, time. So well, Carlos brings up a great point, and a lot of these women don't realize what they're doing is abnormal. They, they've been bleeding for so long, these heavy, gushing, floody periods. 
it becomes their new normal and it happens gradually over time and they don't realize they think well i'm getting older my mom was a heavy bleeder i'm a heavy bleeder no if you're changing pads more frequently than every three hours or if you have to change two at a time that's too much and so you got to realize that that's not normal um, sometimes, you know, when you get a hemoglobin back on these patients or a hematocrit, you're stunned. I mean, people can <laughs> how are you walking around. I mean, how are you alive? <laughs> how, yeah, how you are know? you standing up? But they do it so slowly and over so long, they don't realize. And once they get it treated, their quality of life, as Carlos mentioned, how horrible some of these, we call them the silent sufferers. There are over a million women in the United States that are suffering in silence. They don't want surgery. They're just staying on the sidelines. And they kind of deal with it, and it's miserable. And it just doesn't have to be. And that's why we're glad... We're on your show to try to help educate that it doesn't have to be. You don't have to be a silent sufferer. I would presume that one of the reasons why I might think this is just kind of my lot is that chances are, based on what I was learning about some of the statistics, it's very likely that they have a friend or two or a relative or two or three that, that has the same problem. <laughs> exactly, so, yeah, it's very common. You know, some of us just have this problem um, and not necessarily associated even with, you know, a fibroid uh, diagnosis, for example. Right. They just think that's just the way it is. And fibroids are benign tumors. We've got to get that out, you know, this is not cancer. If you have cancer and you're suffering with symptoms, you know, that, that's hysterectomy. But fibroids are benign tumors. And so, you know, it's the leading cause of hysterectomy in this country, which, you know, that should be cancer. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be fibroids. Fibroids are benign. Well, so, so, you know, let's kind of delve down into that a little bit. So I, I, I come to you, Dr. Alicon, or, you know, I guess sometimes I might find you directly, uh, Dr. Littman, but if I go into my OBGYN um, and we get to talking and having that conversation you described, I mean, tell me kind of what can I expect? I mean, obviously you're one of the experts that hopefully someone ends up with because you're clued into the fact that there are other ways besides some more aggressive surgical approaches uh, for many of these ladies. So, Take me through the process. Once I get to you and it's kind of identified that, uh, you know, I'm having symptoms along the lines of fibroids, how do you discover that, yep, that in fact you do have a fibroid or you have multiple fibroids in place? What's the process for determining what, what my situation is? Sure. So obviously the first thing we want to start with is, you know, what, what are your symptoms? You know, because oftentimes if you have fibroids and you don't really have any symptoms, they don't bother me, they don't bother you sort of thing. So, um, you know, we, we want to know what sort of symptoms are occurring because that kind of clues us into where the fibroids may be occurring, whether they're going to be more in the muscular wall of the uterus where you may see more pressure or pain type symptoms, or if they're having a lot of bleeding symptoms, that suggests that they may be closer to the cavity or sometimes within the cavity. So just the, the, the history alone can clue us into um, the type of fibroids that they may have and, and where those fibroids may be. And then oftentimes on physical exam, just by doing a routine pelvic exam, I can have a pretty good idea of uh, the, the size uh, of, of fibroids that I'm dealing with. I mean, some of these women are walking around with uteruses that are equivalent to a three or four, sometimes five-month pregnancy. Wow. I mean, it's very obvious. I mean, you barely have to, I mean, I can just touch their belly and realize, okay, that's, you know, that's not normal. So in that patient that has that kind of fibroid uh, presence there, and obviously, you know, as I read about it a little bit, you know, some of them, as we described earlier, may not have the severe symptoms that that drives somebody to you. So in that patient, the person that has a fibroid or fibroids present, even if they're on the large side, how does that, how does that affect, you know, their ability to have a child to, you know, to, to become pregnant or carry it to term? Um, you know, at what point, you know, do you, are you worried about the person who has some fibroids that maybe in and of themselves from a symptomatic problem 
aren't causing them too much disruption in their quality of life, but maybe they want to have children, they're younger. Uh, how much of a problem is that? You know, that's that? a really great question and a difficult one to answer because we see the gamut of patients presenting with fibroids in pregnancy. I, I've, I've had several patients who present who have very large fibroids, uh, you know, a, a basketball-sized fibroid, yet, yet they're able to get pregnant and carry a pregnancy to term without seemingly having any issues. Mm-hmm. And then I have some women who present and have relatively small fibroids, maybe only a couple of centimeters, but again, location's key. And so those are women who often will present with recurrent miscarriages, you know, because it's affecting how the pregnancy is implanting into the uterus and keeping the pregnancy from developing normally. So um, it's really kind of their pregnancy history that will somewhat clue us into whether the fibroid is causing a problem. If they're having a difficult time getting pregnant or staying pregnant, then we're a little bit more concerned. If they've been able to get pregnant and haven't had any issues, then there's not really any reason to address them unless they're having other symptoms like you mentioned, the bleeding, the pressure, that sort of stuff. I see. So you might take the lady who doesn't have really significant pain and bleeding related to their fibroids, but they're having some issues with miscarriage. With the history of fibroids, you might say, well, we, it might be worth exploring some, some corrective measures for the fibroids just to see if that doesn't impact your ability to have a child. Okay. Correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, great information there. So if, if I am, again, going back to my, you know, our, our big group that we're hoping to really help today, and, and that is the, the group of folks that are dealing with the, the life affecting problems. Mm-hmm. How do you determine for sure what the extent is? I'm sure there's, you know, obviously you can you can palpate it or feel it on, on your, your exams, but are there some visual studies that you're going to be doing to kind of determine that? Are they invasive, non-invasive? How Absolutely. The most common thing that we do, and, and usually the, the first line study that we do is a pelvic ultrasound, which will clue us in to um, a great, it will give us a, a great deal of information. Kind of like what you'd do if I was pregnant. Right, exactly. Yeah. Very similar. Um, oftentimes we do have to use uh, a vaginal probe to get a little bit closer look at the uterus and, and, and have a little bit better idea of where those fibroids really are and kind of how they're uh, uh, positioned. Um, but that can clue us in uh, a great deal in terms of uh, what, what might be going on. The other study that we'll often do is a type of pelvic ultrasound called a sonohistogram or saline infusion sonography. This is basically where we put a tiny little catheter up through the cervix and we eject a little bit of salt water into the cavity of the uterus. And that's a great uh, study because it provides a lot of information about what's really going on in the cavity. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, if we just do a regular ultrasound, we may see what looks like a central fibroid that we think is in the wall of the uterus. But then once we do that saline injection, we see that, oh, no, look at that thing. It's almost t- entirely in the cavity. Um, and so that really affects um, the, the opportunities and the options that you have available to you for treatment. So, you know, we determined, you know, you talked about the fact that it's it's a non-cancerous tumor. I mean, what what do we know what causes a fibroid to, to form? Nobody knows. Um, it's just one of those natural we, abnormalities that occurs in a group of people. Right. Yeah, we know yeah. that they grow with hormonal stimulation, estrogen particularly. That's why they grow sometimes very rapidly, as Carlos said, during pregnancy, and why they tend not to be an issue for women in menopause. Uh. Okay. Well, I, I was just kind of curious about, you know, how did they, if we had an idea of what... No, it's a great question and an active area of research, but nobody really understands the genetics behind it. We know that, you know, family history plays a role. If your mother had them or if aunts who've had them, you're more likely to have them, but there's no guarantee there. So we're, we're not really sure why some women develop them and, and why other women don't. So we've gotten in, we've done some studies, we've determined that there's a history of symptoms and that we've we've identified visually now what they are, how big they are, where they are. Um, 
where do you go from there? Where, where, what's my treatment options? So that's what's exciting nowadays is that there are a tremendous amount of treatment options available for fibroids. And so at that point, usually what I'll do is you know have the patient come back and we have a discussion about what their plans are for fertility. Do you want to have more children? Um, do you uh, not want to have more children? Uh, you know, what's uh, what's your work like? Uh, how much downtime can you take? All that affects uh, the the type of options that we may want to consider. But uh, really, there are um, a tremendous amount of, of, of options. It used to be that, again, like John mentioned, uh, his fibroids is the number one and continues to probably be the number one um, indication for hysterectomy. And oftentimes, open hysterectomy, meaning, meaning the traditional big incision, C-section type incision where you're down for six weeks in most cases, uh, well, that's just not the case anymore and, and, and or shouldn't be the case anymore. Um, really, there are much less invasive options now available, both surgical and non-surgical, uh, which can provide uh, significant relief uh, from the fibroids and, uh, and will get you back and up on your feet and back to work or back to your normal activities much quicker than the uh, traditional uh, surgical options. Is there a first line? You know, what? Where? Where do we usually try to start? Uh, you know, I know in a lot of our medical modalities, oh. we try to start kind of, you know, obviously as oh. slow as we can, and then go from there. But we start kind of uh, exercise, nutrition, things that we can try to help. A lot of the patients I see, um, well, first I see a lot of African American women in my practice. It disproportionately they suffer with fibroids more than other racial groups. Um, and as Carl said, they run in families very strongly in African-American families. So we'll, we'll start diet, exercise, losing weight. Um, a number of the women I see um, have to, you know, really try to work and try to limit weight, you know, weight gain, try to get more t- toward their ideal body weight. We kind of institute like an anti-estrogen strategy because we know estrogen stimulates fibroids. So the more f- body fat they have on them, that's also a secondary source of estrogen. So we, mm, we want to try that. to improve you know, weight loss, exercise, eating well. There are certain foods even that are kind of, uh, you know, your mom, when she said to eat those colored vegetables, the oranges, the yellows, they have flavonoids in them. They actually block an important enzyme in estrogen biosynthesis. So there are, there are kind of nutritional food things that we can do to try to, um, you know, the certain soys that kind of compete with estrogen and we f- called phytoestrogens are in, s- in certain soy. So there's a lot of stuff that you can kind of do initially, try to behavior modification before you then have to do something more. I mean, it's not going to be the be-all, end-all, but it'll help. And that, you know, kind of gives us time to, to talk about some of these less invasive things like UFE, for instance, uterine fibroid embolization. We're talking with Dr. John Lippman and Dr. Carlos Alcon about, uh, Alcon, sorry, uh, about the treatment of uterine fibroids. And, and I'm surprised, you know, with, with just those types of measures, the in-home remedies, if you will, some exercise and, and some diet changes, are you saying that I can actually shrink? Somewhat? uh, We haven't really studied the size reductions, but I can tell you if you lose weight and you eat well um, and you get closer to your ideal weight, your fibroid symptoms will improve um, and they'll get significantly better. And some women that don't really have a horrible go with it, that'll be enough. But for a lot of women that I see, they're gushing and flooding and having miserable periods. You know, that'll help but that's not going to take care of the problem. You've got to do something more. In the past, that meant surgery. And as Carl said, now there are less invasive things to say, like UFE. So, so tell me a little bit about the uterine fibroid yeah, it's, embolization. It's uh, called UFE or UAE, uterine artery embolization or uterine fibroid embolization. Basically, 
um, we gain access to the body through a little tiny nick in the skin at the top of their leg, or their right leg. It's the same approach a, a cardiologist, an invasive cardiologist would use to go to the heart. We go in instead of the heart. We're going into the uterine arteries on each side. And there's one on each side of the uterus, and they branch like a tree, getting smaller and smaller branches till you get out to the fibroids, which are essentially the leaves of the tree. Mm -hmm. I know what size those tiny branches are, and I can flow direct these tiny particles to cut off the blood supply of every fibroid in the uterus, you know, going on one side at a time. And it takes about 30 minutes or so to do. Um, after that, she gets a Band-Aid where I went in, and six hours later, she's home. So it's an outpatient procedure that takes under an hour. She's home six hours later. She's got about a four or five day recovery out of work for one week and every fibroid in her uterus is treated successfully or should be. What, what level of, of success do you typically see with this procedure? Well, well over 90% of patients. And I see everybody back three months afterwards. And what we want to see, we, we use a more sophisticated imaging tool um, called MRI, magnetic resonance imaging. Ultrasound is great to pick up fibroids, but it's like high-definition television getting MRI. And what we want to see there, which you can't get with ultrasound in follow-up three months later, is when we inject contrast, the uterus is alive. It'll light up like a light bulb with the contrast. But none of the fibroids, whether she has one or a 100, should light up at all. They should all be dead. And by the three months after I've seen her, the fibroids are almost like half the size. I mean, they've shrunk by almost a half. So they get nice symptom reduction and nice size reduction too. So is that tissue that you know that comes from embolizing the fibroid does it just get resorbed or or passed or you know how, how does that work? Occasionally Do you have, you it'll get passed. Get that? About five percent of women will see some passing temporarily maybe for a cycle maybe a couple cycles and it peters out but that's only five percent. The rest kind of go from grapes to raisins right you know inside the meat of the uterus just like if they went into menopause the same kind of dying out process occurs you know, you know, naturally, if you will. I see. One of the one of the uh, Twitter followers has asked, uh, "Is UFE better than having a hysterectomy?" I'm presuming yes. Can I still get pregnant after UFE? Well, uh, I think it is better than a than hysterectomy. Although hysterectomy is an option for women, I think it should be the last option, not the first and only option. That's been the biggest problem. Most women suffering with fibroids only hear about hysterectomy. Now that is an option. But in my opinion, it should be the very last option because UFE is so good, it's safer than surgery, less invasive, shorter recovery, and I think it's been undervalued. The uterus is really undervalued in these women. We're, the average age of hysterectomy for fibroids is less than 40 years of age. Mm. These are young women losing their uteruses, and that has an impact. It impacts them psychologically or can, sexually. Um, we know that taking the uterus out in young women affects their bone, you know, increases bone loss. And there is some data to suggest it has some effect heart, heart disease-wise, cardiovascular risk, particularly the, if they're less than age 50. So we've been kind of cavalier in taking these uteruses out, in my opinion, unnecessarily. So while it is an option, I think it should be the last option. Once I'm on, uh, once I've had a hysterectomy, then I'm going to be doing some hormone replacement. Is that correct? Well, not necessarily. Um, in most women nowadays under 50, unless there's a clear reason to remove the ovaries, uh, meaning that you have a very strong family history of ovarian cancer, you have a strong history of uh, family history of breast cancer, or even a personal history of breast cancer, um, you have uh, some other reason that might make you, uh, the, removing the ovaries uh, a, a better idea. We really try to preserve the 
ovaries as much as possible in, in, in women. Because exactly to John's point, we found that women who had their ovaries removed just at the time of hysterectomy for no other reason than, well, we're in here, might as well do it. We find that these women are, are experiencing higher rates of cardiovascular disease later in, in life. So Intriguing. Even though the hormones may not be being produced to the same level that they were while they were menstruating, obviously the ovaries are producing some hormone and and uh, those those hormones are, are obviously having some effect on on the cardiovascular system later in life. Now, to your your question or to the Twitter followers' question about hysterectomy versus UFE being a better option, again, I think John's points are excellent. I mean, in terms of recovery, in terms of uh, risk, in terms of um, you know psychosocial impact or whatever you may say, um, UFE is going to be hard to beat, but hysterectomy at the same time is the only guaranteed option where we can do it and you're never going to have any bleeding again. Because there is that small percentage of women who just don't respond to some of these other minimally invasive options that we're discussing today. And hysterectomy is, is a, is a you know, perfectly fine option uh, for those women still. But I think John's point is an excellent one. And, and, and that is that, unfortunately, a lot of you know, the doctors in my profession are discounting some of these less invasive options and, and their, you know, hammer for everything is, is a, a hysterectomy. When you've had that kind of conversation um, with your colleagues in the community or, or perhaps, say, at a, at a conference or wherever you might be engaging uh, the other OBGYNs out there and they're in that kind of group of folks that say, I, you know, I, I believe this way is better than, than, say, the minimally invasive options, do they give some some reasons why they might think that way because i mean what if what if i'm in the care of that doctor well <laughs> i think in in my case we're very fortunate to have dr Littman in atlanta i mean he is really one of the foremost experts in this uh, modality in, in terms of uterine fibroidization and, it, and it's a pleasure to be able to send patients to him because i know that they're going to get excellent care and and that he's going to you know be right there with me all along um, to to deal with this. Unfortunately, uh, some of the other docs in, in in his specialty maybe don't um, follow along with the gynecologist uh, as much, and and so they they kind of do the procedure, but they leave it to the gynecologist to deal with uh, the complications afterwards, or you know admitting to the the patient to the hospital if they have any any you know unforeseen complication. And so uh, unfortunately, I think that's left a, a little bit of a bad taste in the mouth of some of my other colleagues in, 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 in my uh, shoes. Um, so it is really nice to have uh, Dr. Lippman, who, who I know, like I said, when I send him a patient, he's going to you know be right there at the bedside caring for that patient until um, the, the treatment uh, is successful. This is a, you know yet another show that I've done where I've, I've had a couple of specialists that face the same patient from similar or but different directions uh, and who have an integral part in their their outcomes over time and it, you know it sounds like you're very collaborative as two specialists who treat the same patient maybe with you know different techniques or different uh, skill sets that you're going to bring to the patient or, or, or treatments that you offer but again it, it kind of reinforces the fact that a multi-specialty approach on so many things that we treat is really the best and 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 that was one of the reasons why I was kind of glad to have you both here today just because uh, the patients really are 
they're going to trust who they're going to. That I've been going to this particular physician, and maybe they're a great physician, but perhaps they haven't been exposed to uh, this type of procedure on any great level, or maybe they've had a bad experience out in the world someplace else, so now they're not going to tell the patient about it. Uh, you know, the, the, the thing that I, I find important for patients to know is that there are a few things out there that you can deal with that this doctor can fix for you uh, and that doesn't require somebody else. But particularly when when it's involving things like, in this case, something that's so critical to, you know, my being as a woman, uh, as, you know, the uterus, um, and we're talking about one of the big surgical options or one of the big curative options for this particular problem is taking that out. And, and uh, you know, some, similar to breast cancer, it's so central somewhat to their identity. Um, it, it's important from my perspective that that patient understands all the options out there and then they, they can choose. You know, I mean, some women may still want to proceed with the surgical option that Absolutely. you have, but they deserve yeah. that option. Absolutely. We see patients that after you explain both procedures, if they say, well, you know, I just want to be done with it. You know, I know what you say about UFE, but I just want to have a hysterectomy. God bless you. Totally fine with that. Perfect. But the unfortunately, most women suffering with fibroids only hear about hysterectomy and that needs to change. And that's and, and your point is excellent. That's why I say the, the collaboration, when, when each doctor brings their skills to the table, the patients benefit. I mean, you know, so we get kind of the uh, synergistic effect of what Carlos' skills bring to the table, what I can bring, and the patients benefit from that. Anytime you can collaborate and treat things, you know, multidisciplinary fashion, patients win. We're talking with Dr. John Lippman of the Atlanta Interventional Institute and Dr. Carlos Alarcon of Marietta OBGYN. And one of the patients um, or one of the ladies and from social media, I, I actually had linked up with a, a, a group called the Fibroid Project as I was preparing for this and beginning to promote the show. And they, we kind of joined up and uh, they obviously have an interest, uh, an invested interest in the topic. Um, so we began to kind of cross promote a little bit. And, and one of the uh, followers of the Fibroid Project asked a question I was told. I wasn't a good candidate for UFE because I had two pedunculated fibroids, uh, and I'm not a good candidate for MR-guided ultrasound laser because the two fibroids are on the outside and I'm not, of the uterus, and I'm not a good candidate for laparoscopic myomectomy using da Vinci robotic technology because I have several large and small embedded fibroids that robotics wouldn't be able to get to them properly. So I have to be cut the old-fashioned way. Had researched everything. I was so disappointed. Do you, do you have any input on something like that? What's the Well, situation? I would encourage her to get a second opinion, okay? okay. Um, you know, a lot of times if you're just getting that from one doctor, he or she may be absolutely right, but I would definitely encourage her to, you know, go see a, an interventional radiologist and, and have some additional. That MRI can, can uh, clue uh, John into, you know, if those pedunculated fibroids are still amenable to uterine fibroid immunization, he may be able to guide his uh, his uh, catheter right into those blood vessels and, and be able to treat those uh, pedunculated fibroids. So, um, again, I would encourage her to get a second opinion, both, you know, for other uh, potential options like UFE or for robotic hysterectomy, I wouldn't necessarily, or I'm sorry, myomectomy. I don't know, you know, not not knowing the particulars of her situation. Right. Um, you know, if she hasn't had a second opinion about that, I would encourage her to, to do so. That's a yeah. topic I was going to ask you both about, and, and, and I've done so now in, in some of these conversations, is the whole issue of second opinion. And I'm finding that yeah, I think it's a good thing, particularly with such life-changing things. Absolutely. That, you know, just... 
you know, obviously you want to have a good rapport with your physician. You want to feel good about them and trust what they have to say. But, I mean, if, if we're talking about something significant that's really going to change my body, I'm going to get an amputation. I'm going to get a exactly. reconstruction. I'm going to get something that's going to zap part of my body. Um, it's probably good to go to another expert that does it a lot. And, and if they say that to you, you're like, great. Do you, do you recommend people out there in the world sure. or do you just Absolutely. say? Yeah, if they ask for it, I'm, I'm more than happy. I, listen, I have never uh, counseled a patient not to get a second opinion. Uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, these are life-altering decisions that you're making, and you have to be comfortable with both the, the, the physician that you're choosing and, and, and the, the surgery that you're having. And so, you know, I encourage my patients, if you ever have a doubt or concern, whether it be something that I'm promoting or something that, you know, one of the other doctors I know is promoting, you 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 are, you have the right and the responsibility to make sure that, you know, you're, you're well informed. So I, I think getting a second opinion is never a bad idea. Yeah. And I can't, I can't speak to the laparoscopic, um, you know, a part of that question, but as far as, uh, you know, pedunculated fibroids, um, just to let people know what that is, those are fibroids that are on a very narrow stalk. And then, you know, like a cherry, it's got a very narrow stem when it's connected to the uterus by a narrow stem and then a ball at the end. And it was presumed that you couldn't embolize those. You couldn't do UFE on pedunculated fibroids. But that's an, that's an old wives' tale. It's based on a one case report of a very, you know, very large pedunculated fibroid that I don't think anybody would have tackled anyway. But I embolize pedunculated fibroids all the time. So absolutely get a second opinion because there are some docs that won't embolize pedunculated fibroids, but that's in and of itself probably silly. Probably she still is a candidate for UFE. The second thing is a lot of the guys that are reading the imaging, the MRI, for instance, those are general radiologists that don't understand when you say pedunculated, that might disqualify somebody. And they just describe it as a pedunculated fibroid. Any fibroid that kind of goes away from the uterus sometimes is described as pedunculated when they have a nice broad base of attachment to the uterus they're not pedunculated they're exophytic if you will and so the radiologist that's reading the MRI he doesn't or she doesn't realize the significance of their words you know they just are used to calling it pedunculate anything that goes away from the uterus but the the person getting the reports going oh my gosh they got a pedunculated fiber oh well they can't have UFE or an insurance company i've had insurance uh-huh. companies say well this you know but that again, those are on old criteria that basically old wives' tales. It's not based in science. There are lots of very good evidence to show that you can embolize pedunculated fibroids very safely. So she needs to see somebody that's very experienced in UFE. You know, that would be my recommendation, as well as seeing a gynecologist experienced in the robotic and laparoscopic. So and one topic that we haven't uh, discussed much is, is uh, there is a newer technique actually available now laparoscopically called Excessa. And this is a, a bipolar cautery technique where you're basically inserting these little needles into the fibroids that cauterize or burn the fibroid from in the inside. Um, and it's done under direct visualization. In other words, you're watching this as it's occurring. And she may be a very good candidate for that procedure as well. And, and that has the benefit of, uh, you know, outpatient surgery. And my understanding is that most people are back to, to work very quickly, you know, within a couple of days as well. So, so similar benefit 
benefits to UFE, but just, again, a different approach. Um, and so that's, I think, why it's so important that patients are aware that there are so many treatment options now available, and it's not just hysterectomy, you know? And one other, the, she mentioned MRI-guided focused ultrasound. That That is basically a focused beam of ultrasonic energy into the fibroids. And while that can be done, it's usually limited to either one fibroid or a couple of small, two or three at most. You can't go around. I mean, it takes a long time. It's a lot of physician time to do this point by point, essentially knocking out the fibroid. Now, it's, t- it's non-invasive and you don't enter the body at all, but it's really a local treatment. And the other problem with MRI-guided focused ultrasound and I think we're the only ones that even have the unit in the entire state of Georgia because we did um, a number of trials with it. Uh, and it's novel technology, but the insurance companies don't reimburse for it. Mm-hmm. So there isn't an insurance company that I'm aware of in, in these parts that will reimburse for that. So it's really um, kind of a, you know, a fringe, at least in our area, a fringe technique that's very exciting. And if you have one fibroid to knock out, particularly if you're a woman who's interested in pregnancy, if you're an infertility patient that Carlos mentioned earlier, if you have one central fibroid either preventing you from getting pregnant or causing you to recurrently miscarry, you don't have any other symptoms. So UFE is not an option for a woman who has no symptoms um, and she's an infertility patient. That would only be a surgical patient unless you did focused ultrasound. And focused ultrasound has shown to be really nice in that niche kind of application, but the availability and the insurance is a problem because it's expensive. It's about 10000 out of pocket, which, you know, is a lot of money. And so, we, you know, there's more work to be done. <laughs> so your, your interventional radiology by background, and obviously Dr. Alakon, your OBGYN. Um, so if, if I'm a patient and I'm dealing with this kind of issue, um, how do I... F- how do I find the best specialist? Now, if you're in Atlanta, obviously I can say clearly these are places that you want to be um, because as you've talked about from the opening of the show, you recognize that there are a host of options for a patient and you want to ensure that they know what each of those are and that they can then make the best personal choice rather than having your own predetermined agenda or predetermined notion of the this is the best and this is all I'm you know all that other stuff is hooey I'm not gonna uh, I, I find that a disservice to the patient um, you know so let's pretend for a moment that some of our listeners because obviously through social media many of our listeners aren't in Atlanta um, how do they find the best person you know uh, from interventional radiology I presume they just mm-hmm. need to ask do you work with UFE and those types of options and how many that kind of things what how well, should I find the best person it depends uh, a number of things. Um, sometimes the patients, you know, want to travel to us. So we've had patients from all over the country, Africa, the Caribbean. Um, we've had patients come to us. Atlanta's a hub. It's it's not a difficult place to get to. So patients have traveled not only throughout the Southeast, but also from other countries to visit us um, and to, to have our expertise. And that's that's one avenue. If they want to know who in my part of the country or who in my city and I don't want to travel to Atlanta, for an interventional radiologist, they can go to the Society of Interventional Radiology's website. It's sirweb.org. And it will list, you can find in your, by state, you can click on your state, and then it lists by city alphabetically. And then you have to look in your city, you know, you might get a number of names depending on how large it is. 
And then you have to ask them, you know, how many UFEs have you done? How many, how, you know, how long you've been doing this? And you kind of have to kind of just vet it out just like you would anything else. Um, I've always wanted to do this. It's probably not the best response. <laughs> probably not. <laughs> um, or what's UFE? Yeah, what's, yeah, that's probably not a good one yeah. either. <laughs> you know, as, as it relates to the website you're talking about, we'll make sure that we get that up on Twitter and Facebook uh, after the show so that, you know, listeners can come back and get that and they can research specialists in the interventional radiology that would be able to do uh, the UFE type procedures and, and, and minimally invasive things that, that you're going to offer. Uh, how about you, Dr. Alarcon? What kind of questions do you advise a patient to ask when they're linking up with an OBGYN? And, you know, uh, just in general, but obviously we've got this particular focus. So, you know, what, how do I find the best one for me? Well, that's a great question. I always think, um, you know, talking to friends and family is a good start. You know, talk to people and figure out, you know, what experiences they've had, if they've had a good uh, experience with physicians. It's, you know, if, if you're lucky enough to, to, to find a physician that way, at least you've got, you know, some, some insight from the patient perspective in terms of, you know, if the person is a, is a good doctor. Um, <clears throat> talking to your other providers, uh, talking to your family medicine doctor, your internal medicine doctor, you know, we know, we know each other and, and we know kind of what each of us does and what our special is, or at least we try to inform each other about that. So just talking to other physicians might you know, clue you into who, who's good and who's well-known for uh, certain modalities and, and that sort of stuff. And then, you know, in just your initial conversation with the, um, with the physician, if, if you're getting one option, you may want to seek uh, elsewhere. And, and uh, again, like I said, with the excess option, for example, that's not something – I don't do that, but that's not necessarily something that I'm not going to present to a patient because I know it's available and they may be a good candidate for it. So I think it's it's good to have physicians who are willing to, you know, promote things that maybe – you know, they don't even do. I think that's a, an oftentimes a good um, sign that, that they're, they've got your best interest uh, in, in mind. The thing that I hate to hear is I, I don't want to lose my patient. Oh, my goodness. It's, uh, what, a, what, a, what a bad reason to not send somebody to another physician. And that's a great point. It's, you know, something that, that John, I know, is really good about doing, and I try to be good about uh, doing this as well. I mean, we often see other providers' patients because we're offering them something that potentially they can't find elsewhere or their, you know, OBGYN isn't comfortable doing or just isn't trained to do. And so we really try to do a, a good job of getting those patients back to their, their yeah, providers. Make them back up yeah. where they did. Yeah. Exactly. That's I mean, we, we have no interest in, in taking other people's patients. We yeah. just want to provide the best, you know, possible option for, yeah. for the patients. Yeah, that's why, so. you know, knowing that in advance is one of the reasons why I wanted to help get the word out about you all in particular. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about uh, the, like the MR guided procedure uh, is still somewhat novel, and from an evidence base and, and availability, it's not really all that uh, looked upon favorably by insurance. But are the other things that we've talked about today? Uh, obviously, some of them are going to be, or all of them are going to be oh, yeah. covered. All the rest of them. I mean, UFE has been around almost twenty years now. It's I'm not aware of any insurance company that doesn't cover UFE. So UFE is covered. It's just to say that's why. You know, when people start talking about some of these other options, um, MR-guided focused, um, even Excessa. Excessa seems, you know, novel, but it's very new. We don't, you right. know, it, we've done kind of this kind of therapy in other areas of the body. But for fibroids, this is a little, this is somewhat new. And UFE is, has a long track record of safety and ef efficacy, say, oh, you know, 20 years now. So we've got lots and lots of data. It's well-proven, well-accepted the biggest issue is most women suffering with fibroids don't hear of that option. And that's why we say we're just trying to, the more we can raise awareness about this and so that people will know to ask. 
And not just that, but you know, the other really exciting thing, especially with patients that John and I have been taking care of recently, is is the opportunity to address problems that other people may consider not an option for a UFE. Uh, we've seen several patients recently who have very, very large fibroids who we've done a combined approach uh, where, say, the fibroid is growing kind of partially in the cavity and partially in the wall of the uterus, and those patients are excellent candidates for what we've been doing where uh, he, John, does the UFE first, and then a couple of weeks later, I come in and do a, a hysteroscopic myomectomy, meaning that I go up through the cervix with a little camera into the uterus and try to resect as much of that fibroid out as possible. And uh, so that, that's that been a really uh, neat and, and novel technique. Uh, technique that uh, I think is is not uh, been seen in, in, in at least around here a yeah, whole very, lot or you know elsewhere very few uh, gynecologists that I've encountered have um, when I've ever told them about it they always thought that was a great technique because the problem is when you have a big fibroid in the cavity it's too big to just remove it on its own and usually it, it's accompanied by other fibroids that are causing symptoms so you've got to deal with all the fibroids in the uterus and then this big one in the cavity. And in years past, before we had embolization, that was in, you know, entirely surgically handled. But as I say, Carlos and I, we do this combined approach. It's two procedures, but they're both non-surgical. So I can't just embolize that patient by myself because that big central fibroid in the cavity will try to abort, and you'll, you're putting this patient through a miserable birth, if you will, and that's just not you know, acceptable. So I can't do my thing just by myself and he can't do just, I mean, he could do surgery, but he can't offer just going in and trying to take that big central one out because one, it's very big, probably too big to take comfortably out. And second, all these other fibroids that are in the uterus causing symptoms. So we can take care of all of it. I go first, I embolize, it knocks them all out. And then before this woman would abort this big central fibroid, Carlos goes in and and takes it out hysteroscopically because it's dead. You can tackle things a lot bigger right. than you could ever tackle alone. Sounds kind of like when I was meeting with the group of physicians and we were talking about the the approach to breast cancer treatment, how sometimes they'll send the patient for some oncology treatment first before we do the actual surgery because in some cases they may actually be able to shrink, shrink the tumor. The tumor. Exactly. So the yeah. surgery that comes is now less extensive, and so that opens some options for us surgically. So it's, it sounds like kind of like that. We're shrinking the fibroid a little bit with the, the procedure that you're going to do, Dr. Littman, and then surgically you have a little bit less trouble or a little bit less major surgery to do on your end. Right. It, it allows for a lot less bleeding with the procedure that I do, and um, it quickly debulks the fibroids. In other words, it gets rid of that tissue in a much quicker fashion than normally would happen as well. So you, you see um, uh, much less uh, problems with, uh, as, as John mentioned earlier, you sometimes have tissue passing through the vagina, and you can imagine that that's you know, not very much fun. So this, this uh, combined approach has really helped to diminish that uh, sort of side effect occurring after UFE. And doing it non-surgically, that's the key. Both of our procedures are non-surgical. They're outpatient non-surgical procedures. There's no cutting on this at all, no surgery at all. After I've had my procedures done, from a, just a discomfort perspective, I mean, how, how, how down am I for a couple of days after my procedure? Is it, you know, is it just kind of just a little sore? Or well, how, how to, how? It's, more, it's typically more than that. I mean, some women have a lot of pelvic pain because the fibroid tumors are hard. That's how they cause their symptoms. If they're located centrally, they kind of stretch the line and cause these heavy flow. 
on the bladder like a paperweight, causing them to urinate frequently or pressing on pelvic nerves. So these things are hard and firm. And um, so afterwards, the, the pain, we've cut off the, we've knocked out the fibroids, cut off the blood supply. There's going to be pain afterwards. And a lot of women have a lot of pelvic pain um, during their menstrual. It can be like that for a mm-hmm. few days. Usually the typical recovery is five days, of which the first two or three are kind of yucky and miserable. Some people have a lot of pain, but that's kind of the minority. We get them through it, but most find it annoyingly heavy, yucky, and each day gets better than the previous. But once they get out of, after about two or three days, you know, then they get rapidly back to their baseline. And I mean, I've had some people do Friday, Monday. I don't recommend it. Uh, but Condoleezza Rice had this procedure on a Friday. She was back to work Monday. <laughs> so, I mean, some people can breeze through it, but right. most people need four or five days out of work for a week. Gotcha. And so, like, pain meds, things like that, that yes. helps help mm-hmm. with that. Okay. Yeah, and, and I've had the opportunity to see now lots of patients two or three weeks out from their UFE. And, I mean, they look just as good as they did when I saw them before. You know, they're very excited. They've already had some reduction in their symptoms. The uterus is already shrinking. Uh, it's always neat to see that where, you know, oftentimes I'll see the patient before John does his procedure so that I can get to know them and evaluate them for my procedure. So I get to see the before and, and after. So it's nice to, to see that perspective. And uh, and then from my uh, standpoint, the myasure, one of the biggest benefits of the, the hysteroscopic myomectomy that we're, that we're talking about is that the recovery is super quick. Most of my patients are back to uh, normal activities within a day or two. Uh, because, again, we're not making any incisions like John mentioned. We're not having to cut open the uterus or anything. We're, we're going in uh, through the cervix and, and removing the tissue from the inside. Uh, so oftentimes I do a, a Friday procedure, and they're back to normal activities on Sunday or Monday. Are there are there some, you know, obviously through the social you know, world. I, I've, as I prepared for the show, I found some, you know, some organizations like the the Fibroid Project and and others out there. Are there some more, you know, community based programs or, or support for women that are dealing with fibroids or you know issues it's like this sporadic. that they can kind of use? Um, there is an organization called NUFF. Carla Dion, who is a a friend, and uh, she started a foundation, National Union Fibroids Foundation, um, has been you know, a strong advocate on. A number of you know non-surgical approaches. Um, so they're helping to get some word out correct. about this. So much like we like we've kind of tried to capitalize on mm-hmm. as we lead up, led up to this show. Okay, I was just kind of curious. There are a few you know out there, but it's pretty sporadic. In fact, there's been very little research done. It's only the third year that the NIH has even done a national research agenda about fibroids. It's been so overdue. You know, cancer and HIV and AIDS and heart disease get all the research money. There's been very little research in fibroids until very recently, say only the third year. It doesn't sound like there's billions to be made doing the procedure. So there's a few people stepping up to, you know, kind of like in hyperbaric medicine, our drug is oxygen. So there's not a lot of people investing in studies. Um, so, you know, that, well, that's frustrating. It is frustrating. And particularly since, I mean, I, I speak to women all the time about this and you know, I've had comments from women saying, well, if this was a testicular, benign testicular thing, <laughs> it, this would have been solved and done, you know, a long time ago. This would have been handled oh, come on, and man. researched. We got BPH. Yeah. We have to have procedures. <laughs> so, come on. But, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, they definitely will put up with a lot more than we would. I'm, I can guarantee yeah. that. Yeah. I, you know, I'm always amazed by how quickly our time goes by as we do these shows. Um, one of the things I wanted to make sure that we got in, uh, we've been talking with Dr. John Lippman of the Atlanta Interventional Institute and Dr. Carlos Alarcon of Marietta OBGYN. So I know you both have some presence online in the in the social spheres tell us a little bit about how patients can find you 
online because I'm sure you guys are putting out with some regularity some great information that a patient can get that either they can share with a loved one or uh, help themselves. So tell me a little bit. I'll start with you, Dr. Alec. Where, where are you all located online? Thanks. That's a great question. So uh, probably the easiest thing is to go to our webpage. It's just MarietaOBGYN.com. And you can link to our Facebook or our Twitter account from uh, the the main Facebook. Uh, I'm sorry, from the main uh, website. Uh, we also have a blog that we put out that regularly will update women about some of these different options, alternatives to you know not only hysterectomy or treatment for fibroids, but uh, treatment for um, hormone uh, therapy and uh, alternatives to hormone therapy and all sorts of other um, uh, GYN and OB related topics. Okay. And you said you you said Twitter too. Uh, yeah, at Marriott OBGYN. Okay, 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 great. And and also, if you're on you know our Twitter feed, which is Top Docs on BRX, then you know we're obviously linked up there as well, so people can uh, get to you that way if they're uh, linked up with us. How about you, Doctor Lippman? Um, the web uh, we have a website. Uh, it's atlii.com uh, or atlantafibroidclinic.com. Um, on Facebook, we also, if you start typing Atlanta Interventional Institute, you don't have to type all of it, but you'll find us there on, on Facebook. Um, and then Twitter, it's at uh, Dr. Lippman1. Okay. Now, do you all have, as, as your practices, do you have any kind of events coming up that people, you know, whether it's educational or support-related, any kind of events? Because I know different groups every once in a while will have things going on. Uh, do you have anything to tell people well, we about? Have, uh, actually, we have a couple of events coming up uh, at the end of – uh, end of July, Saturday, the 26th of July, we're going to be in Austell at the uh, Eagles Chapel Ministries, and it's a totally free seminar. Um, interested um, people can call 678-861-7787. And then at the end of August on the 23rd, we're, we do two uh, of these a year. We did the first one this year at the Malia Hotel and had over 300 women. The second one is uh, August 23rd out in uh, Evergreen Resort at Stone Mountain. And it's what's called the Wear White Pants event. Oh, yeah. Um, That's how I met you. Right. So we started, uh, I started this Wear White Pants movement to try to educate women because women suffering with fibroids, you know, can they can never wear white. It doesn't matter what time of year until they have UFE and they get their life back. And it's been a tremendous women's fellowship. And so anyone interested in coming to that, uh, Cynthia Bailey's going to be there, Monica Pearson, uh, Teresa Edwards, um, uh, former patients, uh, uh, it's it's a lot of fun. It's a great event. So they could call the same number six seven eight eight six one seven seven eight seven and could come out wear rock the white pants. <laughs> and that's right. And I'll make sure that we get information up about that on our um, you know social media feeds as well. And and uh, just for the listener who's out there to try to find Top Docs Radio if you're not already linked up with us there. As I mentioned earlier on Twitter, we're at Top Docs on BRX. We're at Facebook.com slash Top Docs on BRX. For the hyperbaric physicians of Georgia side of things, if you're somebody that's dealing with either a wound that's not getting better or you've had some radiation, now you're having trouble, please go to our website for the for the practice, and that is www.hbomdga.com. We also have Twitter and Facebook for the practice, and it's also at HBOMDGA. So link up with us there. There's some excellent information, and we try to stay linked in with our guests on the show so that we can kind of cross-pollinate people with information about events going on and, and just health information in general. So please, 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 if you have somebody in your life that uh, is dealing with uterine fibroids, whether they're family or friends, please be sure to tell them to tune in to the podcast of this show because it's going to be up later on today. 
um, and it'll be available ongoing so folks will be able to come and get some excellent information here. Um, I want to say right off the top here, thank you very much to Dr. Alarcon and Dr. Lippman for taking time away from their busy practices. They've got full schedules that they have to move around to be here to share this information. So uh, we know that time is very valuable and we're very pleased to have them here with us to share this information today. So thanks again for making Top Docs a part of your afternoon. Thank you, gentlemen, for being here. And uh, we'll see you all next week. Thank you. Thank you very much.